0: It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain. Somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone.
1: Lift off.
2: I'm retired astronaut Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible.
0: In November of 2022, the Artemis One mission launched out of Cape Kennedy, headed to the moon for the first time in over 50 years. The Space Launch System rocket propelled the Orion capsule out of Earth's gravity well and on a trajectory away from Earth.
2: The SLS, a rocket on par with the powerful Saturn V used in the Apollo missions, is the key to America's return to the lunar surface in the next few years. Our guest last
0: week was Rick LeBrode, who was the flight director for that mission. Today we talk with Gary Lyles, who recently retired as the SLS chief engineer at NASA's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama.
2: It really is rocket science, and we'll dig into how NASA engineers manage risks to create the powerful rockets that send humans off the planet. So, Gary, welcome to the adrenaline zone. Uh, I hate to use a cliche, but Sandra and I have always wanted to have a rocket scientist on the show because this is the show about risk. So really happy to have you here today.
1: Yeah, thanks. This is uh this is fun. I love talking about rockets. It's my one of my favorite things to do.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm actually looking forward to getting into the the guts of the space launch system and the Artemis program with you, but we'd like to start with. The beginning of our guest journey. So can you tell our listeners how you got involved in the space sector and what attracted you to rockets specifically?
1: You know, when you grow up near Huntsville, you're kind of automatically attracted to rockets and, and NASA. You know, I, I remember sitting and watching the Apollo t- uh, 11 landing late at night on TV. My uncle worked for NASA. He was in the facilities office at NASA. Uh, My dad worked for uh, a contractor for NASA for a while that did uh, preventive maintenance on the big test stands. And so I got to hear all these stories when he came home about walking to big test stands and the engine tests. I even got to go out to a, uh, it was kind of an open house back when I was about 10 years old and got to see an engine firing. Wow, That's cool. Those are awesome. Yeah, but I always wanted to be a mechanic. My dad was a mechanic or a. carpenter. My my grandfather was a carpenter, so that's what I wanted to do. But my dad would have it no other way than for me to go to school because I was the only one in the family that had ever gone to college. So I decided, well, the best thing for me, if I like mechanical stuff and building stuff, it, to be an engineer. You know, when I graduated, there wasn't much going on. You know, NASA had gone through a reduction in force fairly recently, and they weren't hiring. Uh, the only people that were hiring were chemical companies or steel companies. And uh, I didn't have a lot of interest in that. So I went off to graduate school for a while. And somehow I just turned in a resume to NASA uh, because I was tired of going to school. <laughs> and, um, you know, you never know. You can't plan these things the way they happen. I Somebody asked me the other day when you were 30 years old, what would you have done different? And um, I I probably would have said, I don't worry about planning your life too much because you can't do that. So it just happened to me. I, I went in, had lunch with a couple of the managers in NASA. They invited me in, interviewed a couple of guys. And suddenly I got a call one day that says, hey, do you want to work for NASA? And they offered me a job. It turns out they offered me a job that I had never interviewed for, didn't know anything about. I walked into a group propulsion systems group that I didn't know anybody, didn't even know what propulsion systems was all about, didn't know what it meant, and uh, it all got started. You know, I sat in the same desk for ten years doing propulsion and, and thermal
2: analysis on space shuttle. So, Gary, what what was your educational background? That that you know, what is it that you think drew you or them to you? Uh, were you a mechanical engineer, chemical? I, I was a mechanical engineer. You know, that's one of those things where
1: you look out in the industry and you see who's hiring. And I got into chemical engineering and I hated chemistry. Hi, yes. Hi, Good man. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so I got into uh, mechanical engineering. Yeah, I, I have a degree in mechanical engineering.
0: You know, Gary, I know you worked on the Space Shuttle main engines over there in Huntsville. I mean, to today they're still the most advanced rocket engines that have ever been built. And it was impressive how well they worked during the whole shuttle era. We had a few problems with them, but not too many. So what do you think went into making the SSME so amazing? And, you know, we as we were learning them as operators, it was impressive how fast those turbines were spinning. I don't think people realize that one small failure in those turbine blades would have torn the aft end of the shuttle apart. So why do you think those
1: engines were so successful? well it it started with the challenge those engines are what they are because of the requirements of the of the space shuttle because it was basically an airplane and and the engines had to be relatively small and lightweight. It required a um a different engine cycle thermodynamic cycle than we had ever built before, and that was a stage combustion cycle where all of the fuel that went into that engine went through the main combustion chamber and, and created thrust. Uh, that put tremendous requirements, and because it was a hydrogen uh, engine, it put tremendous requirements on the turbo machinery. And if you remember, there was probably two major advancements in uh, in technology with the space shuttle. One was that, of course, the orbiter tiles. Um, and the other was the uh, high-pressure turbo machinery on the, on the space shuttle main engine. So you start with that challenge, and that created a lot of other challenges. We had to do things different than we'd ever done before. We'd al- always tested components first and then assembled those into an engine system. Well, you can't do that with a staged combustion cycle because the complexity of the of the test fixture is is so much that that it's easier just to assemble the engine and put the engine on the test stand. So we started with engine system testing, and the engine, uh, because of its high technology and the turbo machinery, had a lot of problems in the early days. It had rotor dynamic issues, uh, it had thermal issues, we cracked turbine blades. But how we got there was a lot of test uh we we went through what we used to call a test fail fix cycle where um we had to test and find the problems and fix the problems and go into test again as as rapidly as we could it turned out that the more we tested better we got the more design changes we made we evolved that engine though over time significantly with new turbo machinery
0: So what lessons did you learn working with the SSMEs that were useful for the design and match of SLS? Because I don't think a lot of people realize that the engines that are going to be long-term on the space launch system are derivations of the space
1: shuttle main engines. You know, one lesson I learned uh, in working as the SSME uh, space shuttle main engines was the process of evolution. There's nothing that can compete with the process of improvement Test improvement test improvement um, I led a uh, team of uh, rocket engineers that came from the three existing uh, rocket engine companies at, at the time, which was Rocketdyne and Pratt and Whitney and aerojet and uh, what I learned from that is we looked not only at rocket engines but at airline engines and fighter jet engines and we found out that they were unbelievably reliable they operated at temperatures as high as the space shuttle main engine not not at the pressures but they still were under high stress high energy uh operation and those those engines would run forever and it was because they had evolved those engines over time and kept improving them and they had a um what they called a technology test bed at all of the uh the engine builders and they would Run all of their technologies through that technology test bed, ground test engine, before they ever incorporated it into the uh, into the engines. That led me to believe that the next vehicle should not be a leap in technology if if we wanted to to actually implement it within the cost uh, ceiling that we had and within the schedule that we wanted to uh, advance a heavy lift launch vehicle. So. All of that learning about evolution led me to believe that we ought to evolve into SLS. And that's the reason we have the propulsion system we do. That's the reason we have RS-25s, which is the space shuttle engine, basically. Uh, That's the reason we have the solid rocket boosters, uh, because I avoided much of the risk of development by utilizing the propulsion system that have have evolved over time. And we'd already invested
2: all of this learning into that propulsion system. So, Gary, I've um, got a couple of questions for you. One, I, I got to ask, I know it had to be a real thrill for you the first time you saw the shuttle launch uh, and do it safely because, you know, your your rocket engine was on that thing. But as an engineer, as a design and test engineer, it probably was almost equally important to you the first time you ran that engine on a stand and it did what you wanted it to do. You know, the test failed test. It was like actually a successful test. This thing's ready to go. Which of those moments was more special for you? I I think seeing the flight. I I never will forget
1: STS-1. Uh, It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen at the time because when it uh, came, cleared the tower and, and did the pirouette, to fly east, I, I thought it was the prettiest thing would, I'd ever seen, and uh, I guess I still do. SLS uh, rivals it. SLS uh, produces more power and more noise, and and uh, it it looked like the sun
2: rising that night. But, uh, I n- I never will forget to shuttle launch. Yeah, and a shameless plug here. Uh, I believe John Young was the commander of that mission. Former Navy pilot and Georgia Tech graduate. So a little intersection here with. The- so let's talk about Artemis a little bit, um, you know, for our listeners, you know, NASA's most recent big kahuna rocket. Right. Can you put that system in context for us? You know, how big is it compared to, you know, say the rocket that launched uh, the Apollo missions to the moon? Can you give us a sense for the size?
1: It, it's it's comparable to the Saturn V. We actually produce more thrust than Saturn V. We're up above eight million pounds of of thrust. It, it's a certainly a different looking vehicle it in it's evolved um, in its final configuration uh it will be very similar to the um payload capability of of Saturn v
0: The Artemis one launch build up went through several attempts and I know people were watching in the news and and sort of trying to figure out what was going on, so you can walk everybody through why that happened and how you had to manage the risk and unknowns of dealing with the first time launch because you were learning every
1: launch attempt. There was a new learning point, right? We knew a lot about the the vehicle because uh, we had taken the the core stage and engines through the green run uh, test, and so and we haven't had a lot of experience with um, with the propulsion system. We had test fired the. Uh, the solid rocket boosters many times. What is different is when you go to a new facility, I always worry about interfaces where the facility and the vehicle are joined together and, and you have to operate them as one system. And uh, that was that being the brand new thing about uh, the first launch, there's always learning involved, especially with uh, uh, I say especially as it's, it's any vehicle, but with hydrogen vehicles, it becomes very important to uh, have good interfaces. Yeah, because hydrogen likes to leak, right? Hi- hydrogen loves to leak little tiny molecule. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what makes it such a good propellant. And so you have to deal with the operational uh, problems that it, it creates. But what we found in doing that, and so we we uh, planned on tanking tests, a wet dress rehearsal. We had planned to uh, do whatever it takes to get the loading procedure correct. And those are the kinds of things that we had to work. It's not surprising that we had to do it that many times. My experience with shuttle is the launch vehicle had many more problems than SLS had on the first uh, space shuttle flight. But again, those interfaces um, create problems. And so in this case, the first launch attempt, we could not show based on the uh, criteria that we had set using the instrumentation that we had available to us that one of the engines had actually been chilled down to the point uh, that it could get in its uh, start configuration. That was probably due to the constraint uh, we put on it, and and this is what was nice about the first attempt was we had the opportunity when we couldn't chill the engine to actually go through troubleshooting on the pad, and so that first launch attempt became a test for us, and we uh, reconfigured the vehicle and and ran uh, several tests, including closing off all of the engines except the one that uh, that we couldn't prove that we had chilled down and we showed that that engine was actually chilled appropriately and so uh, we changed our our criteria through a lot of uh, past experience with that engine we knew it was being chilled the next attempt we had a leak we had we had also had a leak on some of the fill and drain valves and uh, and fill and drain disconnects and you know th- this is a case where you You have a criteria again that limits the amount of hydrogen that that you can leak, uh, and we could not. We we kept breaking that limit, and so it created a situation where we had to. We actually had to roll back, uh, replace uh, some of the seals. We actually, in real time, changed the loading procedure for on the hydrogen side because we determined that we were trying to load hydrogen too fast, and it was not allowing that seal to position itself and seal. And so the crew uh, changed the loading procedure. They called it a, a a softer, gentler loading procedure. But all that was done, uh, all that learning happened, and and it's uh, it's almost normal you have to go through. We won't go through that kind of thing again, but we may have leaks again, but that was a great learning process at first launch.
2: You know, one of the things I try to remember, uh, you know, is, you know, this nation does a lot of things that are very technically difficult and we're usually the first nation to do it. And they're very hard. Things like, you know, uh, the V22, things like stealth technology. And, And so it may be embarrassing in the media, but in fact, there's nobody else who can do this kind of stuff. And we always try to do it as safely as we can. So I, you know,
0: and if I can, for our listeners, you know, Gary was talking about constraints. And so when we are dealing with a complex system for the first time, the engineering team and the operations team sit down and they write down a list of sort of parameters that they know are really important to manage the process safely that they don't want to exceed. And so if during the process, some of those parameters get get exceeded, then they know to stop. And that's, Gary, what you were talking about with with this engine situation.
2: So, Gary, let's talk a little bit about the design team. Uh, In my humble aerospace engineering education, I was always struck by the trade-offs that are are there. You know, the structures folks always want the beefiest, strongest structure, which costs weight. You know, the aerodynamics folks always want the the slickest, cleanest, you know, exterior of, uh, you know, in the right shape and all that. And of course, the propulsion people are stuck in the middle and everybody's fighting against drag and lift and all that sort of stuff. You know, I'm familiar with that with airplanes, but what about designing a rocket? What kind of trade-offs do you find uh, from your side of this, of the house as the propulsion person? H- how does that process work when you're doing a rocket instead of an airplane?
1: Uh, I, th- I think it works uh, very similarly. The big job of the chief engineer really as the architect of the design is to, to manage all of those trades. We, we had a unique situation with um, SLS in that we had had existing designs that we were integrating uh, with one clean sheet system, which was the core stage. When you have a situation where your engines, your your boosters, your upper stage, even your spacecraft was already designed, you don't only have trade-offs. You got an integration uh, job of making sure that you don't impact an existing design and cause them to change, unless you completely have to do that. We have, for example, more thrust going through the uh, go, go going through the forward attach of the boosters on SLS than we had on Space Shuttle, and to keep from redesigning that forward attach. We put the forward attach into a structural test so that we tested it all the way to failure to see what its actual margin of safety was and so uh the trade off was uh, okay, depend on your analysis and redesign the forward attach or go spend some money on a test article and break it and see what kind of margin of safety you have. Those kind of trades were. I think unique to s l s because of the way we had to deal with the existing
2: designs it sounds like what you're saying in that uh, that very interesting example of of testing of failure rather than redesigning that you must have found that the original design was more conservative than they thought because if it hadn't if it had failed where exactly where they thought it was going to fail, you might not have been able to use it yeah, we did. We found out we had a
1: sufficient uh safety margin and and we normally find that out, The engineers are relatively conservative. And so you have to really push back. Everybody wants to carry a little bit of margin in their pocket. And, and my job as the chief engineer was find it. Let's find that margin. Let's get it all out on the table uh, and see what we have, because we can't afford, you know, for launch vehicles, you can't afford heavy. The rocket equation doesn't allow it. You want as much um, specific impulse as you can get, and you want as light a weight as you can get. That becomes a problem with a hydrogen system. You know, one of the early trades that we made, should I go with hydrogen or or should I go back to the Saturn V kind of configuration with a heavy propellant? And a trade always gets to be, uh, can I build a hydrogen tank, propellant tank, that big? Uh, and is it going to be light enough that I can uh, that it, it actually will be uh provide me with the performance that I need we, when we made those trades, we knew that we were trading some manufacturing difficulties with SLS that we would not have had uh, with a heavy propellant. So what I had to trade in that case was do I want to develop a new rocket engine or or redevelop a f1 Saturn engine from from uh you know 50 years ago knowledge, or do I want to develop a uh kerosene or heavy propellant engine from scratch, or do I want to reduce the risk on the propulsion system and take the risk in the manufacturing process on the hydrogen tank? And that's that's an example of a trade.
0: So, you know, let's talk about that for a second, because um, there were some challenges with manufacturing that tank, as a matter of fact. And, and NASA had to go back and the contractors had to go back and look at the friction stir welding process and how you scale it up. Did you guys have other manufacturing issues and how does that affect risk
1: and safety? You force it not to, to uh, affect risk and safety. You, you, you try to force those kind of issues into the schedule risk and cost risk. And out of the safety risk. And, and so that's that's what we do. One of the big manufacturing issues was the size of the tank. We we had to build a, a welding machine, a friction stir welding machine, the size that had never been built before. Uh we had to weld because of the uh the loads that go into the LOX tank, uh, we had to friction stir weld a weld that was thicker than we had ever welded before. Uh, and so we had to develop all of those welding criteria uh this, the speed of the rpms of the friction stir welder the speed of travel all of those things had to be developed basically from scratch and um we had to the the alignment uh of the uh, welding machine had to be unbelievably close and we had to fix that a couple of times the inner tank is required to take so much load that it is it is a heavy formed structure that it riveted together or, or bolted together and we had a we had a lot of problems assembling that intertank area that carries all of the thrust of the of the solid rocket boosters it it was mostly the this the size the fact that we had to train a, a new uh, manufacturing crew that had to build hardware that uh, had never been built before. Uh, it turned out that manufacturing was a long pole in the tent, basically, when when it came right down to SLS. So I've
0: always um, been curious, how would you describe the differences in design and manufacturing approaches between design, you know, when you're working on a crude vehicle versus an uncrewed vehicle?
1: Is it margins mainly? Yes, that's one of them. Um, it starts with the design. And, and obviously, I've never worked on anything but, but uh, human-rated vehicles. Um, so I don't necessarily know what kind of additional risk uh, might be taken in, in a non crude vehicle. If, if I was designing a, a non crude vehicle, I would put a lot of the same design specifications in it as I would a crude vehicle because it drives you to reliability. And if I want a highly reliable launch vehicle uh, and not lose a very expensive or maybe a one-of-a-kind payload, then I want a highly reliable vehicle. reliable vehicle. And that starts with design criteria. We have design standards that sets uh, factors of safety on stress. Uh, it sets factors of safety on uh, fatigue, life, uh, both low cycle and high cycle fatigue, it also sets some criteria on redundancy. Uh, there's, there's a lot of systems that, um, especially in avionics systems, electrical components, where it's very easy to uh, add redundancy to the system. And so you look at fault tolerance. I would like my system to be at least one fault tolerance and, and most times two fault tolerant. Uh, Those all go into the selection of the electrical components, for example. You want to have the paperwork and the testing and and the proven reliability on those components. And then in many cases, you still have redundancy. We have redundancy in our computers. We have redundancy in all of our uh, operating uh, instrumentation, which which, uh, allows us to assure that we don't, for example, shut down a good engine. So, all of those things go into the design, plus uh, you got to remember that, that the crew uh, is an asset. And so, we, we Thank have... Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> if you've got a crew on board that can prevent a failure, then you want to be able to, to use the crew to do that. It works better in, in an in-space situation where things are happening slower, it's hard to do on a launch vehicle. But for example, on this launch vehicle, we have provided the crew with the ability to uh, change the, uh, the uh, guidance uh, if, if they need to. And so they can actually enter into the uh, flight software and they don't have a stick that they can fly the vehicle with, but, but they, they can enter and input into that configuration. So Gary, if I if
0: I may interrupt real quick, just this is because with AI coming on and, and computers getting more and more, I guess I don't say the word intelligent, I guess that's but adaptable to unique situations. How long do you think that the crew is going to be as much of as an asset for that purpose
1: as you just talked about? Yeah. Uh. I think as long as we have pilots for crew. <laughs> <laughs> Thank
2: you. <laughs> as he throws this white scarf over his shoulder. But, yeah, okay.
0: I just had to ask well, that question. Go we'll on, so it, I I never get there. there. <laughs> you know,
2: I,
1: we, we always have an, a, one You know, one difference in, uh, in the design process on a crewed vehicle is you got the crew involved. Yeah. And so, you know, all the crew sits in all of our meetings. Uh, we talk to the crew all the time. We, we understand what they want. And I asked one of, one of our crew members one time, "You're never gonna give up on having the capability to fly this thing, are you?" And he said, "No." And I said, "Okay, I, I give up. Then we, we will do that." <laughs> Sorry, I had to ask. <laughs> uh, the other, the other important thing is, as a last resort, you know, if I have uh, one or two failures and and I have an imminent catastrophe, then I need a way to get the crew off. And so, having a launch abort. System and the ability to send the crew uh, caution and warning uh from the launch vehicle to tell them what the status is um of the vehicle and to recommend abort if the vehicle thinks they need to get off you know all of that you just don't have that in a in a, an uncrewed vehicle, and so that's a design parameter that that you have to you have to deal with. You don't want abort regions where uh, you're, you have what we call uh, black regions, where there's no place to to abort. You know, in the case of SLS, if we lose an engine, for example, which I don't expect, but if we lose an engine on the pad, we can take Orion to a nice, safe location to get off. They don't have to get off right then and and do some kind of miraculous abort.
0: And if I may, I don't think people realize that we had Black Zones on the shuttle and we had some very sporty abort scenarios right off the pad that...
1: Uh, I, I were, remember were, the crew, in, including John Young, talking about the RTLS. Yeah, um, return to launch site for our listeners. Yeah. Return to launch site. And uh, that was sporty. Poof! I would never have wanted to fly one of those. <laughs>
2: we'll probably get into that when yeah, someday well, we when... interview uh, Sandy and she can tell us all about the uh, the, the things that we <laughs> yeah. didn't know were happening. <laughs> But anyways. So, hey, uh, we're getting close to being out of time. I did want to ask you, Gary, about, you know, the future of rocket design. You know, there are a number of applications in space for rockets that don't rely so much on chemical reactions, for example, like, you know, which which prevents you from having to carry a lot of heavy fuel. Things like electrical power to accelerate xenon ions to very high speeds. That's really what do you see, not just for the sort of maneuvering and control little things, but for the big things, are there any major technologies coming down the road that could fundamentally uh, change the business of putting heavy objects into space? Or are we pretty much stuck with what we've got? You know, it, it is hard to beat a hydrogen
1: combustion when you want to go f- uh, take heavy things very fast. You're, you're taking me back to some years that I spent managing wh- what we call advanced propulsion and and we thought of all kinds of things. We talk about we thought about laser propulsion to shoot the vehicle into space. We thought about augmenting uh, the uh, lift off with a magnetic uh, rail, for example, uh, to get it up to speed so that you don't have to have to carry the big boosters. You know, one of the big technologies that we spent a lot of a lot of effort on that is still out there is air breathing combined cycle propulsion. Uh, you know, we had the we had the national aerospace plane program back in the early 90s. Uh, we had uh X-33 and Venture Star in the in the 90s. You know, single stage to orbit is still uh you know you're still you got combustion, but you're leaving one propellant on the ground. You're breathing breathing air. Uh, I think a combined cycle going to hypersonic propulsion is one of those things that will eventually happen. We we took it on earlier than we should have. We were a little bit optimistic about um, how lightweight we could make a vehicle, what kind of thermal protection we would need uh, because we're traveling through the atmosphere uh, at Mach 7 or 8 or, you know, whatever it turns out to be. All of those technologies will come along someday. I think the nearest term non-combustion kind of technology, though, uh, will be nuclear propulsion. And I think if we've really got our mind on Mars and we don't want to uh, spend forever in uh, cislunar space, if we really want to go outbound into the solar system and beyond, I'm a believer that nuclear propulsion uh, or a hybrid of uh, solar electric propulsion and nuclear propulsion uh, will be what gets us to Mars.
0: You know, the, the nuclear is getting a, lo- a, a fresh look. I saw Pam, who's the, for the, our listeners, the deputy administrator of NASA, announced um, that NASA and DARPA is going to work on a nuclear nuclear program for engines.
1: I'm happy about that. I, I, um, I'm really an advocate because moon is hard. Mars is an order of magnitude harder. And if we really, uh, the, the big deal with Mars is if we want to protect the crew, limit the radiation environment and actually take people to Mars, we've got to get there as fast as we can. Now I'm, I'm all for taking cargo and and pre-placing uh, resources on Mars with solar electric or anything we can. It can be a slow boat, but uh, I would be for putting the crew on the nuclear system and getting them there as fast as we can. Plus, you can go any time with the nuclear system. You don't have to wait for the two-year cycle. When the planets align. Yeah, you, you have to wait for the planets to be aligned. Otherwise, with nuclear system, you've got so much performance you can go direct. Yeah. Well, maybe we'll see it in our lifetime. And
0: as we wrap up, Gary, first of all, thank you for your time. Secondly, congratulations to you and the whole team. Um, the Artemis 1 launch was flawless. And we heard a little bit today about all of the you know behind the scenes work that goes into making it look so easy. And and it's not. We look forward to Artemis 2, 3, 4, 5 and beyond as NASA continues its campaign to, to develop some cislunar Activities and preparation for Mars. So I think you can be very proud of you and your team and what you guys did to put us on that path. And it was just delightful talking with
2: you today. Yeah, and it's great to talk, cut through the media and all that kind of stuff, and talk to somebody who really has their hands on it. It's really fun. So thanks.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. I like I said, I'm. You could take either one of those subjects and I could talk an hour. Um, <laughs> So I'm sorry if I went long-winded, but I, I would like to say that I am very proud of the team. This was a great design and operations team that we, that we put together over the last 10 years. And, and uh, I'm very proud of them and happy for them.
2: Well, good. And we wish, wish you and that team uh, continued success. Thank you.
0: That was Gary Lyles, former NASA chief engineer of the Space Launch System rocket. I'm Sandra Magnus.
2: And I'm Sandy Winifeld. Join us next time for another episode of The Adrenaline Zone.